From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Conversations about ethics that happen in a philosophy classroom only go so far. Their theory and their really, it's usually reserved for the privileged to have those conversations. Frankly, I'm one of the privileged. So if I was just going to continue to do philosophy and ethics in the classroom, what good am I just continuing conversations that have been happening? I felt the duty to look at people who were really living these things. Who, who didn't have the good fortune of being able to think about these things as theories only, but for them, they were real. They were part of their life. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Not Seen Radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm delighted today to welcome our guest, Eric Bowman. He's an educator and a podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He teaches at the Conval High School, where he's a teacher in the social studies department, but he's also the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project, and we're going to get into what that is and talk a little bit about that. But the reason why I'm really excited to talk to him is because he's also the host and creator of what I think is the best podcast that came out in 2022. It's called The Virtue Field, and it is just, it's an amazing show if you haven't heard about it. And we're going to be talking about that on today's show as well. But before we get into all that, Eric Bowman, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much, David. I'm really happy to be here. I want to talk a little bit about your background. And in particular, I want to start into that by asking you about this project that you founded called the Revolution Ethics Project. Why don't we start there? Tell me and my listeners what this is and why it exists. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I went to college to be a history teacher, and I knew I wanted to be a history teacher pretty early on. But then I felt the pull, I've always felt the pull to people who are living their beliefs. I felt pulled towards people like Harriet Tubman. And I realized that I was interested in some bigger concepts of theology and ethics and religion and things like that when I was studying history of religion and things like that. So that drew me to pursue religious studies. However, I always was interested in studying things, but then seeing them in practice. I wasn't really interested in just academic subjects that didn't have implications on the ground. So that drew me to divinity school, to seminary, even though I didn't have any intentions of becoming a minister. I wanted to talk about ideas and see how they come into practice. So that was my work in grad school, but I still wanted to be a history teacher. And then when I came out of grad school and went into teaching, I still had that desire to talk about those kinds of things and study them more and learn more. And I came to realize over time that my students seemed to be interested in those kinds of things too. Not exactly the same things, but a lot of the same things. And there's no real context to do that. You have a pretty rigid curriculum when you're teaching in a public school. And yet I felt there's nowhere in a public school that we ever talk about Bonhoeffer, for example. And what a shame that, that students never get exposed to those kinds of thinkers or those kinds of ideas. So I started this little side gig on my own, which is the Revolution Ethics Project, which is, it's, it meets one day a week and it's a seminar and it's open to anybody who wants to come. It's what I like to call non-transactional learning, which means you're just learning for learning's sake. You're not getting credits. You're not getting any written recommendations. You're just there because you're curious. And we started doing that about 11 years ago. I had a small cohort of students who were interested in starting. I used them as a sounding board to see where we might go. And it has grown ever since. And much to my surprise, there is a lot of interest. There's people coming back again and again. And we talk about everywhere from social issues, political issues. We learn a little history. We talk about theology, ethics, philosophy, the kinds of things that students really want to talk about, but don't really have the outlet to talk about. 
Now, when a person goes to the website for the Revolution Ethics Project, as I was clicking around there, there are photos all over the place. And some of the photos that jumped out at me, there's a photo of Eugene V. Debs, who younger listeners may or may not know was a candidate for president. And in fact, he campaigned for president from jail because he was in prison for being a communist. And also a young woman by the name of Sophie Scholl, who was a resistance fighter against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And so when we're talking about the Revolution Ethics Project, we're talking about a very particular kind of stance towards social issues and a stance towards how one practices in the world, if I can use your words. So so talk to me a little bit about what the curriculum is like or what the discussions are like when someone comes to one of your Revolution Ethics Project meetings. Yeah. The pictures that you see are samplings of people that we've talked about over time. So the answer to your question is, what is interesting to the students at the time? So I, I come with things prepared. I come with well, maybe a thinker that I might, that I think they might find interesting, but then I follow their lead. And that, may, you know, talking about Eugene Debs might lead to a discussion about socialism. It might lead to a discussion about the labor movement. Then we might look into the IWW or something like that, or it might go more philosophical and we want to talk about socialism. And then we talk about Marx the next time. So it's really following the student's lead. I have to admit my own interests definitely dictate the initial conversations. I don't tend to want to talk about someone who's oppressive and horrible. So uh, yeah, it's really following the student's lead, but you're right. There is a a certain angle on things. I, I don't think it's political. In fact, I would argue it's not political. I think it's all about doing what's right and being good to people. So that does mean standing up to oppressive systems and standing in solidarity with people and things like that. So if there are times when it seems like it's political or it seems like it's you know, we're being an agitator or whatever, it absolutely is not that. It's just, you know, being good to people. It's loving your neighbor. It's things like that. And I, I don't really think of that as ideological. But the shorter answer to your question, it, it is guided by the students and what their interest is. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Bowman. He's an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He's the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project, and he's also the host and creator of The Virtue Field, a podcast that came out in 2022 with its first season about the abolitionist and slave liberator Harriet Tubman. So a couple more questions about the Revolution Ethics Project. You mentioned that it's student-centered, but you also said that anyone who wants to join in the conversations is welcome to join. Is it only for high school students, or do you also get adults that come into these conversations as well? Yeah. I like to say that we practice radical hospitality, so anybody who wants to come can come. I've got to be a little bit protective of that because there will be young people who are coming. I can't literally be doors open to everyone. If I detect that someone's feeling unsafe, I'm going to take measures to prevent that. But it really is open to whomever. I mean, we've had adults come. We've had younger people come who are just first time thinking about these big issues, maybe eighth or ninth grade. We have a large contingent of college students who come during their winter break or during spring break or things like that. So it, at times it's quite diverse, usually during like school break time. During the regular run-of-the-mill week, it's mostly high school students, but you'll get an adult our age who might be there joining us from time to time, too. I do want the people to feel welcome. And one other piece that I noticed when reading about the Revolution Ethics Project, and that is you use a particular teaching technique called the Harkness model of teaching. And I wonder if you could briefly explain that to my listeners. What is that and how does that work? Yeah, I I got to give a shout out that that's a a practice at Phillips Exeter Academy. Primarily, that's where it, that's where it's home was its home base. And I do teach at the Phillips Exeter summer school. I've been doing that for about 11 years and that's where I've learned so much about Harkness method. And I also do want to say that I would be the first to admit that we don't always use the Harkness method at Revolution Ethics Project. It's an ideal that we strive for, but I fall into some habits occasionally, but what it is. It's a strictly student-centered method. And actually, David, a side note, there's a few schools in Chicago that are practicing this. The Noble Academies are making an effort to go all Harkness as well. Just kind of an interesting Chicago connection there. But back to what the method is. So when you're practicing the Harkness method, you're doing everything you can to make sure it's student-centered. That means that the teacher really only provides maybe the material that you've read to talk about that day. 
If a, if a teacher comes in with a learning objective in mind or a, a goal in mind, notice that that is, that's teacher-centered. That's sometimes that's the teacher forcing his or her will on the students. What this is trying to do is give a text to students or something to watch or a piece of art to look at or some math problems for the students to wrestle with on their own. And in doing that, the students are hopefully generating questions. They're hopefully thinking their own thoughts about things so that we really are giving the world over to the next generation. We're really giving it to them rather than telling them this is how it should be interpreted or this is what great thinkers have said about this topic. What do you think? So they read a text, they look at a piece of art, they do some math problems, something like that. They come in the next day and it's a roundtable conversation. It's not the Socratic method. The Socratic method is asking a series of questions and being a gadfly and causing people to have their thoughts stirred. The Harkness method is for people to explore in a roundtable where the teacher isn't the head of the table, the teacher is simply one other person at the table. And hopefully you just see the conversation just go around the table. People bring up new thoughts, people ask questions of each other, people paraphrase what they're hearing from each other. You try to stay centered in the text, which is very egalitarian because you've all read the same text for that day. That way, the we all know the student who kind of knows everything already that comes in and dominates the conversation. You don't have that as much because all the students are coming from the same place. They've all read the same text. Therefore, they're supposed to feel free to give their own thoughts, give their own interpretations, ask questions of each other. Ideally, in the Harkness method, the teacher maybe speaks 5% of the time. It's truly student-centered. Well, and a moment ago, you mentioned radical hospitality, but I'm also hearing in what you're saying a kind of radical agency, that you're really giving power back to learners to say, I want to take it in this direction, and it's not necessarily a direction conformed by a lesson plan. That, I think, when you first get started with, that must be a little bit terrifying, but over time, what I'm hearing you saying is you really grow to trust this method. Now, these are my words, not yours. When I say it this way, am I understanding what you're saying, or would you say it in a different way? No, you said it right. And as a teacher, it can be terrifying. We teachers, uh, we're used to having absolute control over our classrooms. We like it that way. That's what's safe for us. That's what allows us to, to deliver the curriculum that we are mandated to deliver. You're really letting go. And you've got to sit in awkward silence sometimes, or you've got to allow students to work out a thorny issue on their own and not jump in and solve their problems for them. It takes a lot of practice and it also takes a, it takes a cultural shift. So it doesn't work as well if one teacher is doing it in isolation in one classroom because they're still used to playing school in the other classes that they go to. So it, it, it's most beneficial if you have a whole school that's dedicated to such a thing. Now, that's pretty impossible at this point. Maybe we'll get there someday, but it's best when you know that that's the expectation no matter what classroom you walk into. Well, and the other piece of this, and this will begin to sort of anticipate where we're going to be going in the next part of our conversation after the break, but it seems to me like something like the Harkness method where you're putting the students in charge as agents of their own education, that's not just a pedagogical shift. That also is an ethical position. You're saying something about the way that human beings can be together. And I, I wonder if you have any comments to, to give to that sort of ethical insight. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to look at it. I'm glad you said that. It is an ethical outlook. It's a way of seeing people. It's a way of empowering people. And it also, I think it's a way of resisting a system that can be pretty damaging to people. And by that, I mean the whole grading system and the whole achievement-based system that education is. I'm a public school teacher, so I'm very much a part of that traditional way of teaching. I, I get it, and I know that we don't just completely separate from it overnight. But the way we teach in this country, really probably all over the world, is it's very transactional. Students are expected to do a certain number of things to get the grade from the teacher. It's very grade-oriented. It's very outcome-oriented. It's not process-oriented. And I don't think we're good at rewarding growth. We're good at rewarding achievement. We're not so good at rewarding growth. And then now as I say that, I think about how I just said that, reward. Like, I don't know that we, we should be rewarding anything. Like, just come to class and learn and explore and have fun with that and listen to each other and and live in the classroom without worrying about what's your reward going to be. And I think that's a really, it's a very troubling system. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Bowman. He's an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He is the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project, and he's also the founder, host, and creator of The Virtue Field, which is a dynamic podcast that came out in 2022. We're going to be talking more about that right after the break. I'm so excited to get into this conversation. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Eric Bowman. He is an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire, where he's a public school teacher and the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project. We talked about that in the first part of the program, but now we're also going to be shifting and talking about an outgrowth of the Revolution Ethics Project, a podcast that Eric Bowman produced and hosted in 2022 called The Virtue Field, which was an in-depth dive looking at the abolitionist and slave liberator Harriet Tubman from a variety of ethical contexts. And I just, I want to get into this with you. I loved this podcast so much. And when I began to listen to it, it's it's produced immaculately. It's got wonderful soundtrack. And, but the ideas and the way that you took different looks at Harriet Tubman, I just, I want to ask you everything and anything about this. How did you come to say, okay, we're doing these wonderful things in, in the Revolution Ethics Project, but we need to do more. Take me through the steps from meeting face-to-face to saying, and now we want to do a podcast. Sure. And first of all, just I want to praise my cousin Adam for his production, the music and the sound and the production by Echo Finch. My cousin Adam runs that company. He did an outstanding job and it wouldn't be the same without him. But he also gave a lot of good advice as to how to do it. He emphasized storytelling and the pace of the story. And he was a great ear to kind of just crystallize what I was trying to say. So uh, while I wrote it all, Adam's input was always there in my ear. So with the Revolution Ethics Project, I've always wanted to reach more people. And you probably feel this way too, David, like you, you read amazing ideas or great theology or something like that, and you just want to share it with people. And I feel that all the time. I feel that whether I'm talking about history class or whether I'm reading Howard Thurman, that I just wish someone would ask me, what are you reading right now? Or what does Howard Thurman have to say about this? So I've always had that in the background, just wanting to share all these amazing things that I'm so lucky to read or hear about or whatever. So I do that in Revolution Ethics Project, but I wanted to reach more people. And we all know that podcasting is the thing that everybody's dipping into now. And I felt a little shy about being yet another person with a podcast. But, but I really believed in, in what I was going to say, not so much that I believed what, in what I had to say, but in, I believed in myself and being able to convey what these other amazing people have said or done. I don't think of myself like an original thinker. I'm more of like conveying these things that, that others have said or done. So I wanted to do that. And the podcast is obviously the I, a convenient way to do that nowadays. So I started writing down some thoughts. I originally had the idea of focusing on different people for several, maybe for one or two episodes and like doing seven episodes that maybe focus on seven different people. But that was where uh, one place where Adam came in and said, no, you really got to go in depth in some of these people that you're talking about, particularly Harriet Tubman. There's so much to say there. So that was really good advice on his part. But as I got into it, I just, I couldn't stop making connections. They were everywhere. I read about her life and her experiences and Everywhere I turned, I saw a connection to something that I had read or a thinker that I appreciated or a concept that I thought was beautiful. And so it just fell into place from there. 
Well, and I want listeners to understand what you're doing in the Virtue Field podcast, because it's not simply a play-by-play biography of Harriet Tubman, but from the very first episode, you're sort of laying out there for the listener that you want to ask questions about ethics and how we are supposed to be with each other in the world. And you really draw a stark contrast there in that first episode. Someone like Immanuel Kant, who is very interested in ethics that are tied to duty, and you can never lie, and you always have to act as if any action should become a universal principle for everybody. And you say, that's great if you're safe and comfortable. But if you are someone in the slave field being whipped, you can't live that way. And that's how you begin to introduce Harriet Tubman. And I I wonder if you could talk about how your own evolution of thought around this contrast began to develop. Like, it was so clear when you got there as a listener, but I imagine it took some playing maybe between you and other conversation partners to kind of get the right fit for the storytelling there. So talk to me about that process. Yeah. I felt it was very important to establish the context, the life that she was living. I mean, we all live in a context and hers is a particularly oppressive one that, that we need to understand in order to really understand her life. I'm glad you picked up on, the, on what I was up to that early on because I wasn't certain. And I think I knew what I wanted to do, but I, I, you know, I stumbled for words or couldn't express myself as clearly as I wanted to, but it, it came over time. The premise of the whole thing, you said it well yourself, the premise of the whole thing is that conversations about ethics that happen in a philosophy classroom only go so far. They're theory and they're really, it's usually reserved for the privileged to have those conversations. Frankly, I'm one of the privileged. So if I was just going to continue to do philosophy and ethics in the classroom, what good am I just continuing conversations that have been happening? I felt the duty to look at people who were really living these things who, who didn't have the good fortune of being able to think about these things as theories only, but for them, they were real. They were part of their life. I struggled with that. And I talked about my experience at grad school at Yale Divinity School. I was always drawn to those kinds of people, people who were thinking about things, but there was something about their life that made those ideas very real. Bonhoeffer, I mentioned, Simone Weil, people who were like, they weren't just dabbling with ideas. They were seeing how they how they get played out in real life. I didn't say it that clearly. I kind of fumbled over it until I discovered it was Howard Thurman who wrote something about slaves doing the work in the field. It's obviously a, it's got a double meaning there. But when he expressed it that way, that they're doing ethics in the field, that really resonated with me. And that when that, when I saw him phrase it that way, I felt like, well, there it is. That's what I'm trying to do. That's where the title comes from. You're working out the virtues in the field rather than in theory or in a book. Well, and let me dig a little deeper into this. In the first part of our conversation, we talked a bit about this teaching method, the Harkness method. And if I can paraphrase it, it's the teacher getting out of the way so that the students can become agents in their own story, in their own moment in the classroom, in their own learning. Later in your podcast, The Virtue Field, I believe it's in the last episode, you say explicitly, we need to be listening to the voices and the stories of African-American women who are present now talking to us about violence and oppression that they're experiencing. But one of the ways that we can train to do that is by listening to the voice and testimony of Harriet Tubman from 150 years ago. In each of those moves, I saw, if you will, the kind of spirit of the Harkness method where like a curator who's stepping out of the way to present the art so that the artist's vision really shines through, you were stepping back and really trying to let throughout this podcast the voice of Harriet Tubman, the voice of Howard Thurman, but the voice of others as well to really shine through. And and for me, that worked really well. But I wonder how you kind of think about the podcast and its structure with these kind of pedagogical philosophies of stepping out of the way. Well, that's a brilliant way to say it that I hadn't thought of. But yeah, I think the podcast may be a good illustration of what comes from Harkness style teaching, where you just set someone free to study someone, read something and like, just go with it. That's what I was doing for the weeks that I was writing. This is just reading what was interesting to me, taking what I could, seeing how it adds to what someone else has said, or seeing how it applies to some other historical figure that I've been reading about. 
that's really what we're doing. We're trying to set people free to develop their own interpretations or to write their own story. And I, I guess if the virtue field was successful, I guess if it came out okay, then that's a good plug for the type of teaching where you allow people to freely explore and make connections. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and I'm delighted today to be talking to Eric Bowman. He's an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He teaches social studies at the Conval High School there. He's the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project. And right now we're talking about an amazing podcast that he was the creator of and the host of in 2022. It's called The Virtue Field, and it looks at ethics through the lens of the anti-slavery movement, particularly the actions and the life undertaken by Harriet Tubman. Well, now might be a good time for listeners who may have heard the name Harriet Tubman but don't really know much about who she was. If we could get just a brief sketch of some of the main pieces of, of who was Harriet Tubman. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. And I do want to point out, I've said this to you, David, that I am not a biographer of Harriet Tubman. So I want to make sure that the people who are biographers of Harriet Tubman get their credit. I was, a, I was a curator, as you said, a curator of the story and putting it into a different light. But I guess the short version is she was an enslaved woman born in around the 1820s on the eastern shore of Maryland. She lived the life of an enslaved woman for the first maybe 20-something years of her life. Somewhere along the line, she changed her name to Harriet Tubman. That was not her birth name. The reason I mention that is I do feel that has really symbolic importance. And I, I talk about that in the podcast, that the act of naming yourself, of choosing your own name. Throughout her life, she showed resistance to enslavement. She did not just passively accept it. One of the things that I talk about in the podcast are the countless ways that the enslaved people resisted. No one should ever interpret it as that they were content or that they were happy to be civilized by the white world or something like that. That's never the case. She was one of those people constantly resisting. If there's ever any doubt that she suffered the worst of slavery, there should be no doubt. She suffered all of the physical harms. She was abused. She was beaten. She was scarred. She was emotionally damaged. All of those things are true. The fact that she came out as Harriet Tubman should not let us forget that fact that she suffered greatly. And then ultimately decided that she needed to do something. She decided that she needed to act and that her way of acting was to not only liberate herself, but to liberate her family or her close friends, those are closest to her. And then eventually to expand that to others to the point where she called herself the conductor of the Underground Railroad and is credited with rescuing hundreds of enslaved people from the South. Later in her life, it, this never stopped. Like It wasn't like she a achieved liberation for herself and her family and then lived a content life quietly in her own homestead. As I say in the podcast, she's showing these other forms of resistance throughout her life. She will enlist in the U.S. military, essentially. Even when they wouldn't accept her as an enlisted person, she would continue to serve as an officer in the U.S. military during the Civil War. And then she would fight for her recognition as a veteran of the U.S. Civil War. And really up to her death would continue with the struggle for uh, women's suffrage or for really, it seems like such a minor thing, but a home for the aged in her hometown. She's just constantly fighting for people and never really, I don't think really reached a, a, a rest in her own life. I think she was trying for rest, but I don't know that she ever achieved that. I think in trying to fight for everyone else to get their rest, I don't know that she ever achieved it for herself. And you pick up this idea of rest really beautifully, I think, in the penultimate episode of the podcast. But there's some other moves that you make towards the end of the podcast that I really want to highlight for listeners. You actually end one of your episodes with a letter from Frederick Douglass. And listeners will sort of know the name of W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass and others. They are high-profile members of the African-American int intelligentsia in the post-Civil War period. But these were contemporaries of Harriet Tubman. And Douglass is writing on Tubman's behalf. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, I have been very visible and you've labored in obscurity and invisibility. And I am happy to sing your praises and to say that all the accounts that you're giving of these events are true. And I really liked that because it showed so well that she was known and understood by people who were in the struggle. And it, this all brings me to a point that you make, and that is 
she was in some ways not just a liberator but a prophet. And there's a line that you said that I really want my listeners to hear you say, a prophet cannot operate from a position of privilege, but rather a prophet needs to sort of go to the people that are suffering and to the places where the vulnerable are. I just, I want you to tell me and my listeners more about that and the insight that you got when you began to realize, I'm not just looking at a historical figure, but I might actually be looking at someone who transcends into what we might, or what Abraham Joshua Heschel would call a prophet. Yeah, thanks for asking. That, that was a very important realization that I had as I was doing this. I think what I think that quote that you read back to me, I think I might have paraphrased Sister Joan Chittister on that one, just to kind of give context. But as I was doing the research, I realized Harriet Tubman considered herself a prophet. She believed that God was speaking to her. And I think it's really important to take that seriously. Going back to my study of Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures in divinity school, I read the proof process that the ancient Hebrews would do for discerning whether someone truly was a prophet. And there was a whole list of criteria or whatever, the mosaic model or whatever. But I remember that one of the things was, does what they're saying jive with what we think God would say? And well, of course it is with Harriet Tubman. So the fact that she's living a life that completely jives with what we believe the word of God would be, that lends a lot of credence to that fact. But even more importantly, she considered herself a prophet. I mean, she doesn't actually use those words, but God is speaking to her repeatedly through her whole life. She's having these kind of charismatic experiences So who am I to deny that that was really happening? Who am I to judge her? I say, if we're going to listen to black women, we need to listen to the claim that she's a prophet because that's what she said. And that really hit me when I was doing the research. I didn't go in thinking that that was a conclusion I would draw. And if there are people who are uncomfortable with claiming that people are prophets nowadays, I totally get it. I'm not entirely comfortable making such a claim either, but she claimed it. She lived it. And All signs point to that being the truth. So let's live that way. Let's see her that way. Well, and I want to stay for a moment with this idea of discomfort, because there are a couple of points where you say very explicitly, listen, I'm talking about a specific kind of ethics. It's not an ethics where you can get the perfect solution to problems, but this is an ethics modeled in Harriet Tubman where you might have to break some laws sometimes, or you might have to use the law in a novel way sometimes. I think for some listeners, this is really going to push some buttons. And I'm wondering how you thought about the framing and the phrasing of this, because there is a kind of anarchist undertone to some of what Harriet Tubman is giving us here. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because there there is an anarchist undertone, but anarchism in its, not its stereotypical way, in, it's in this way. She's not relying on the government or some organized institution to to solve problems. She's doing it herself. I see the model of mutual aid in how she lives, where you just offer what you can to people, no strings attached, and not wait for institutions to do it. She didn't have time to be a theoretical anarchist. She was just like, I got people I got to help here. And she's also doing some very, they're not terribly glamorous things. Like she's doing people's laundry. She's bandaging their wounds. She's making a root beer. These are not glamorous things. These are not the kinds of things that we see a revolutionary The ideal of a revolutionary isn't depicted that way. So yeah, I do think that there's an anarchist angle to it, but only if we're talking about anarchism the way that that it really should be understood. It's not chaos. It's not overthrow the government and sow violence. It's a very particular, I mean, I think of it as a little bit of a Dorothy Day as as much in as much as she is sometimes identified as, as a Christian anarchist. I think it's along those lines. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Bowman. He's an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He's a public school teacher in the Conval High School system where he teaches social studies. He's the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project, and he is the host and founder of an amazing podcast called The Virtue Field, which looks at ethics through the lens and life of abolitionist and anti-slavery agitator Harriet Tubman. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. 
If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. I'm delighted today to be talking with Eric Bowman. He is an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He is the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project, and we've been talking a little bit about their work here on the program. He's also the host and creator of The Virtue Field, which just had its first season in 2022, a podcast that looks at ethics through the lens of the life and the work of the abolitionist and anti-slavery agitator, Harriet Tubman. So before the break, we were talking about the ways in which Harriet Tubman went to and identified with the vulnerable. And you talked about all the activities like bandaging wounds or making root beer, all these sorts of ways in which she made herself close to those that she was helping. And there was something that you said that really struck me. That was, that's not oftentimes the way that we think about a prophet or that we think about a revolutionary. But it struck me that this is actually, in some ways, a kind of very feminine way to be a revolutionary, a very feminine way to be a prophet. One that sort of rethinks the usual kind of rugged individualism that we inherit from capitalism and patriarchy. And so, what does Harriet Tubman's way of doing these things, her way of doing mutual aid, her way of engaging in these things, how does that upset some of the expectations that maybe we've inherited from our culture about what the world that is to come is to look like? So there's a traditional way of seeing the revolutionary, which is the person who stands up to everything and they're in the streets and they're going to jail and things like that. And there's something to that. And Harriet Tubman certainly did those kinds of things. She took beatings. She went to jail. She put her life on the line. There's something to that. There's a place for that, perhaps. That's not me. <laughs> That's never been me. Maybe I'm a chicken. Maybe I'm, maybe I don't believe in my cause enough. I don't know what it is, but I, that's definitely not me. If there's ever a way that I'm going to be subversive, it's going to be to care for people who are forgotten or to spend a little extra time with the person who needs to be heard. That's the best I do. That's the best I can do. And that's what's most comfortable to me. I think that's what's so inspiring about Harriet Tubman is that she does these things in so many different ways. She, she can be a prophet for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. If you're the kind of person who takes action and, and protests before the government, she did that. If you're the kind of person who needs to rather quietly just heal wounds on the side, she does that too. I think it's a very welcoming message. And if we look at the biblical prophets, there's some pretty radical messages there that might make some people very uncomfortable. I know it would make me uncomfortable to have lived at that time. I certainly would agree with the spirit of it, but I know it would be really hard for me to use those words or to take those actions. And so, yeah, I like the way you said that. There's like a, maybe it's a feminine way of looking at prophecy. There's an ethics of care, I think, built into that. And I feel like there's a place for that. And frankly, more than a place for that. Like maybe that's something that we've lost track of. Maybe we've, maybe we've come to think of revolutionary activity or prophecy as being only the loud or the violent or the whatever, the kind of standing in the streets kind of thing. Maybe there's more to be said for the quieter. Now, of course, maybe I'm also conveniently praising myself as a teacher, like to quietly sit in the classroom and teach kids good stuff rather than really taking risks and getting out there. Maybe I should do more, but I do think that helping young people to learn how the world works, to recognize that the world is theirs as much as it is everybody else's, to teach the child who is disadvantaged just as much and just as well as the kid who has all good things coming to them. I think there's something to that. Well, I'm so glad for the way that you just phrased that. And there's something that you said in the midst of your answer that I want to circle back to. You said maybe we've lost sight of some of these insights that Harriet Tubman was offering to us. That really came home for me close to the end of your podcast, The Virtue Field, because one of the things that slavery says in sort of its commanding voice is you may not rest you exist only for labor. You exist only for work. And you actually bring in a contrasting voice from that, from the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann, where you say one of the most radical things that God who liberates the Israelites from slavery in Egypt does is command them to rest. And so you were saying 
maybe we aren't doing enough. Maybe we're just making excuses. But what I loved about the virtue field is that one of the ways that we can be most radically subversive to the God of slavery or the gods of slavery is to simply listen to our bodies and rest. And that seems like such a simple activity, but it is so revolutionary and radical. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think by you saying that, it also reminds me that's a little bit, I guess what I'm talking about when it comes to education too. Like it's a form of resistance to, to say that I'm going to let these children grow as they are. They're going to be themselves. They're not going to just fit some description of what the top student should be like. We're not going to just pump them into the academic system so that they can become the next generation of, of scholars or, the, or that they're just going to become workers in the system. I never really thought about it that way, or it didn't come to light until you said that. But I guess I see education the same way. It's about empowering people. It's about making them recognize that they're not just here to be a part of the system. They're not just here to work. I remember a long time ago, I went to some teacher training that was called Educator in the Workplace, where we were taught to prepare students for the job force. And I remember at the time, I don't want to claim that I was like some enlightened being at that time, but I remember being uncomfortable thinking like, this doesn't feel right to me. And I do think about that a lot. Like, what are we teaching students to do and be? And I think, unfortunately, we're more often teaching them what to do rather than how to be. And I actually recently had this kind of awareness as I was reading, I think I was reading a Henry Nouwen book, which sounds very cliche of me, but I think... I landed on this. I think I, what I ultimately, when push comes to shove, what I want to teach students is I want to teach them that they are beloved. And that doesn't mean by me, and that could sound creepy if it was just me, but I, I mean that you are a beloved person and that, and we don't show them that very often. We just want them to get a job or we just want them to be an A student or whatever. We just want them to behave, fall in line, those kinds of things. And that, does it? That's not very loving. That's very controlling. And it's not really, it's not always letting students just become their best selves. And I feel like a lot of our problems might be solved if we were focusing on letting students be their best selves and not so much just falling into the system. So the rest as resistance that Walter Brueggemann talks about and that many others have talked about, it's not just him. I think that's one way to see it. Don't just play into the system. And another way to see it is and how we teach our kids, you know, that you're not just here to be a part of the system. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Bowman. He's an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He's the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project, and he's the host and creator of The Virtue Field, which is a 2022 podcast that looks at ethics through the lens of the life and the resistance of anti-slavery abolitionist Harriet Tubman. So I wonder, as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, how have you been changed by this project, The Virtue Field? What did it do to you, Eric Bowman, to make this podcast that rocked my world so much? Like other listeners obviously have gotten an experience out of this, but how has it affected you? Thanks for asking. I've thought about this, actually. One very simple thing is that it made me a little less afraid to speak up about things and to share stories. I tend towards shy. I tend towards excessively humble. So I, I'm not one to share new ideas or I definitely wouldn't record myself to, to have people listen to me, but it has made me a little less bashful about that. And it, I think, but I think more importantly, I think it has taught me to listen better. I found that when I was doing the research and writing this, that I was listening a lot for what Harriet Tubman was saying or what her life was saying. And then I was listening for what other people are saying that would relate well to Harriet Tubman's life. I thought about how separate, how different our lives are, my life compared to Harriet Tubman's and how much I had to learn from that and how much I needed to listen to that. And I feel like ever since then, and then since preparing, knowing that I would have a conversation with you, I've really been just listening a lot better, just like hearing what it says to me and what different thinkers say and, and seeing things in a different light. And really pondering, like, why am I doing this? Why do I think this way? What more could I be doing? Things like that. And I don't want to make it sound like I've become this activist who's changing the world or anything like that. I just reflect on those things and think about how I might bring small things into my practice as a teacher, 
mainly I just feel like a better listener of not just listener of like people in front of me, but listener of history, listener to theology, listener to the lives of someone like Harriet Tubman. Well, and doing something like a podcast, like when you're in the classroom with something like the Revolution Ethics Project, the feedback is there in real time. But when you do something like a podcast, and trust me, I know this from my own experience, sometimes it's like just throwing it out into the void and hoping that it connects with someone somewhere and that eventually you might hear back about what that connection was like. And so I recognize that you might not yet have an answer to the question because the podcast has only been out since 2022. But have you been able to connect with listeners and what have you been hearing about how they have been receiving it? The feedback has been overwhelming and I did not expect that. I knew it would be good, good enough because I, I'm too embarrassed to put something out there that doesn't meet a certain standard. But I didn't expect that it would be this kind of universally positive. I'm sure people have their criticisms and they haven't told me, but the reaction has been really positive and empowering. It's made me feel like I want to keep doing this and I do have other things planned. I've been having some conversations with friends or acquaintances about the podcast that I don't think I would otherwise have had. You know, you don't usually bump into a friend in the hallway and talk about American slavery or Howard Thurman's ethics or something like that. But I am having those conversations more and more with people. And people have been very generous. It also has made me feel very appreciated and really feel like they're such good people in the world that like they hear what you want to say and then they want to they want to speak to you they want to say something to you and it's a very you know you feel loved you feel appreciated and that's a great thing i'm really appreciative of the listeners but mostly i think just having conversations that otherwise we wouldn't have had is pretty great well and you mentioned that you have some things in the distance that you are thinking about working on next, would that be in the context of a season two or season three of the virtue field? And, and if so, if you feel comfortable talking about it, where are your thoughts and what's in the pipeline? Yes. I, I actually have a season two and a season three in mind. I think season two will be a mini season, maybe three or four episodes, but I'm, I'm always looking for people who have lived in an important time in history, who have a lived experience where we can see theology, ethics, philosophy, great ideas being worked out. That's what I'm looking for. And I've already got a, my eyes on a few people. I'm trying to choose people also who will teach us a little bit of history because I'm a history teacher as well. So I want to teach a little history at the same time. So with the Harriet Tubman podcast, we got to talk about antebellum America, Civil War America, post-Civil War America. Those are also things that we all could learn more about. I'm looking at some people now who could maybe teach us a little bit about Cold War or could maybe enlighten us about 1960s America or something like that. So I have some ideas. I don't want to pin myself down, but they'll always be around the same subject. It's the, this idea of people who are trying to work out ideas, trying to work out what is the good life and what do we owe to each other, but not just in a classroom, but rather in their life. Well, and this is something that I want to sort of lift out from your first season of The Virtue Field. It's a phrase, and I wonder if we can spend our last few minutes really kind of meditating on it. People, not principles. And if I were to pick the spine of what you're getting from Harriet Tubman and how you're thinking about ethics, that if we lose sight of the people as we are acting on our principles or as we're acting on our ethics, if we're losing sight of the fact that there are real flesh and blood breathing humans that are suffering, that somehow it doesn't matter how good our ethics is, to quote the Apostle Paul, we're sounding brasses, we're tinkling cymbals. And it, I wonder if you can think with me about what it's like to be in a classroom in 2023 with young students who are watching the news and are maybe aware of the world and the way in which we treat everybody so instrumentally all the time and what it's like to say, I know that you're looking at the world and it looks like this is the way to win, but I'm here to tell you, people, not principles, people, not profits. How do you maintain momentum and enthusiasm in the face of the onslaught of all the things around us that tell us that this is sucker bait. This is a loser's wager here. Yeah, I feel so blessed. It's my students. Uh, they're there in front of me. And it sounds very cliche, but 
to an outsider, they may look at a conversation we're having in class and it may sound like it's political. It may sound like they're taking sides in a political debate, but I don't really see it that way. I, I think they're maybe using terms that they hear, conservative, liberal, progressive, Democrat, Republican, whatever. They're using those terms. But in reality, I really feel like I hear them wrestling with this idea that we owe something to each other. And a whole lot of us are not terribly good to others. Yet we got to figure that out. We got to work that out. We got to be, we got to be better. So I wish I could, I don't want to like directly quote any students that would be terrible, but I, a conversation where we were talking about a political issue in class, it happened to be one of those issues that was kind of a left, right, you know, where we come down on this. I was trying to stay apolitical, but the students kept saying, but what really matters is how do we care about people? They didn't really care about whether it was a Republican or a Democrat or a communist or a fascist who believed in that. But if it's taking care of people in a real way, that's what they cared about most. So they had this way of bringing me back. It's not perfect. It's not like occasionally they don't bring up a, a politician or something like that. But, I, but like I said, I think it's them using the terms that they are given in the news or when their parents are talking around the dinner table. Really what they care about is how... Do we live in community? How do we take care of people? How do we do what's right, regardless of what the party is or what the, what the ideology is that is spouting that idea? They don't really care about ideology. They just care about how are we good to each other. Well, Eric Bowman, I hope that you will consider me to be spiritually one of your students moving forward, because I just want to say again to all my listeners, your podcast, The Virtue Field, it was what I needed at coming out of 2022 going into 2023, it was such a learning experience for me. It's so well done. It's incredibly powerful. If you haven't listened to it, my listeners, I'm telling you, turn off my podcast and go find The Virtue Field on anywhere that you get your podcast because it's amazing work. I am so grateful for what you're doing. Please keep doing your work because I want to have you back to talk with me more. Thank you for taking the time to make this podcast and to do all the teaching work that you're doing. Thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. It was my pleasure and I would love to come back. Thanks so much for your kind words. We've been speaking today with Eric Bowman. He is an educator and podcaster based in Peterborough, New Hampshire. He's the founder of the Revolution Ethics Project. He is a social studies teacher in the public school system at Conval High School. And he is the founder and host and creator of the podcast, The Virtue Field. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.